You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning, I'm Michael May of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office, and I'm glad to be with you today for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Every Saturday morning, we bring you highlights of our local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on WNDZ 750 AM. This week, we begin with a highlight from Catholic Chicago. Host Mark Teresi spent time talking about an opportunity for juniors at Resurrection College Prep High School to mix virtually with their counterparts in San Marino. Here's a highlight. We have a very good show today. Uh, our first guest... Uh, are from Resurrection College Prep High School and the Republic of San Marino um, in Italy. Resurrection College Prep is the largest all-girls Catholic school on the north side. Juniors there have a unique upcoming opportunity to mix virtually with their counterparts. This is amazing. At the Scuola Secondaria di San Marino. San Marino is a small, independent state surrounded by northern Italy. In particular, they are going to learn together the fascinating story of how the life of Oak Park native Ernest Hemingway was saved by the Republic of San Marino during the First World War. So far, the students have learned about this history of San Marino with a visit from one of our guests, the Council in Chicago of San Marino, Robert Allegrini, and the coordinator of the class, our other guest this morning in this virtual exchange, is a teacher at Resurrection College Prep, Lynn Scalaro. And I believe we're going to be joined also by a student from Resurrection, Antonia Baroni. Um, good morning. Good morning, Robert, Lynn, and Antonia. Welcome to Catholic Chicago. Buongiorno. Hi, good morning. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Uh, boy, what an exciting, exciting program. Why don't we start this way? Lynn, give us a little background. I, my uh, daughter-in-law graduated from Resurrection. Uh, we have a special needs we child. We don't have Lynn yet. Oh, oh, Lynn, we don't have Lynn yet. Okay, well, Robert. We'll <laughs> <laughs> you got Robert. That's good, a good start. Good, good. Let's, let's talk a little bit about first the Republic of San Marino. Give us a picturesque idea of what's, what San Marino looks like. Absolutely. So it is physically the third smallest state in Europe after the Vatican City and, and Monaco. It occupies about 24 square miles uh, in north-central Italy on the Adriatic side of the country. Um, and it centers around Mount Titano, which is this spectacular mountain that is so high that uh, from it you can look clear across the Adriatic to, uh, to Croatia. So it's a fascinating place with impeccable Catholic uh, credentials because, of course, it was named after its founder, St. Marinus, San Marino, uh, who came from the Isle of Rab, uh, which is um, an isle in the Adriatic, and founded a monastery on this mountain, Mount Titano, and became the, um, uh, the founder of, of the country named for him in the year 301 A.D. So it's actually the oldest country in the world. If you Google wow. San Marino, you'll see that it is the oldest country wow. in existence. Wow, wow. Now, how did you connect to become counsel uh, here in Chicago for San Marino? Uh, did, well, you grow I, up? I, did you grow up there? 
No, I, I grew up here, but I spent a, um, a lifetime in uh, hospitality, public relations, and tourism, public relations. And so San Marino was looking for a council that could help promote the country, since tourism, of course, is one of the main uh, economic drivers of the country. It's, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful place to visit and uh, has so much to offer. That's wonderful. Now, how did you connect? Oh, they're still trying to get Lynn. I, I, I know what's happening here. But anyway, how did you connect with uh, Lynn Scalaro at Resurrection? How did this happen? I, well, I think it's fascinating. You know, this this sounds a little... Um, offbeat but we have kids and one of the movies they love is that um the one with uh, julie andrews she's the queen of Grenovia, but it's a little town it sounds yeah. as charming as um san marino yes so you you know um what what i wanted to do is really to to foster the bonds of uh, shared history between between Chicago and San Marino. And, and the story of Ernest Hemingway and how he was saved by San Marino is certainly one of the ways to do that. And I thought uh, Resurrection, um, being a good Catholic uh, all-girls um, school, would be appropriate because another interesting aspect of, of San Marino uh, is that it has had more female heads of state than any other country in the world. It has had 18 uh, female heads of state in its illustrious history. So that's why it's uh, lasted from the year <laughs> right. 300, and it's run extremely well. This is true. And then I, I wanted to really figure out a way to keep the spirit of cross-border learning alive during during the pandemic. Wonderful. And so with, with Lynn's extremely valuable help, we were able to do that. Well, Lynn, welcome. Uh, Welcome to Catholic Chicago. I was saying to Robert, I'm very familiar with Resurrection High School. I was at St. Paul the Cross for many years as a pastoral associate. Uh, I'm not as a layperson. Uh, Many of our uh, students from St. Paul went to Resurrection. My daughter-in-law graduated from Resurrection, and uh, we have a special needs daughter, an older daughter, but her the person who sat with her when we would go out uh, graduated uh, last year, Rachel McNutt, and she actually raved all the time about resurrection. So, so wonderful, wonderful history. So, Lynn, how did you give a little bit of background on resurrection so people understand uh, the beautiful mission that that high school has had for many, many years? Well, this is just my first year at um, Resurrection. I actually retired from teaching at the end of May last year, and uh, that was short-lived. And um, so I'm very <laughs> happy. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm very happy to be at Resurrection um, uh, part-time uh, as their Italian teacher. Um, I, um, I, I, I graduated from Mother Garen, so, um, you know, Catholic, uh, all women's Catholic education has always been very important to, to me and to our family as well. Um, in, the, in the short time I've been here, it's just an extremely um, uh, impressive school. Um, the, the quality of education that, that the, uh, the, the teachers and the administration provide to the girls, especially in the time, is, is just is phenomenal. And um, also continuing with many projects like this, um, you know, an example of Resurrection's vision of assisting students to make real-world connections, um, you know, between the classroom and the larger society that they are called to transform and career pathways, making connections. It's just, it's just been a wonderful experience. And 
the girls are um, you know, being a college prep school, it is cert- they, they certainly are receiving a high-quality education. It's just, it, it's just been a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Now, this doesn't happen overnight, Robert, and then maybe Lynn. How did this relationship develop with Resurrection and with uh, the Republic of San Marino? Well, well I... Right. I fortunate uh, to have had a, a long-standing uh, relationship with uh, Lynn through the Italian community here in Chicago, which were both very active. So uh, I was uh, talking to her one day. She had congratulated me on uh, becoming the Council of San Marino, and we got to talking about how we can uh, promote both San Marino um, and, um, and Resurrection, and we came up with the idea of using the vehicle of the, the history of, um, uh, of Ernest Hemingway to do that, um, because, again, um, he has ties uh, to both uh, this, this part of the country and also to, uh, to San Marino, as actually does Abraham Lincoln. There is a fascinating story between uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln and the, the uh, captain's regent, uh, the, the, the governors of San Marino, who started a correspondence uh, during the Civil War. So there are these incredible stories of commonality between San Marino and Illinois. And Lynn, how did you pitch this to, I mean, this has never happened at Resurrection High School beforehand. Have they had this no. kind of a relationship? So how did you pitch this idea and where does it fit in? Does it, is it extracurricular or fit into the curriculum? So this was something that um, I really, I really wanted to bring experiences to the girls um, that were not just within the classroom. This has been um, pretty much over my entire career with um, internships and bringing the Italian language not just in the classroom but out into the community, whether it's the Italian American community, Italy, done exchanges and so forth. And so um, I, I told the girls that you know uh, my history and some of the things that I wanted to do, and I really, especially during this time, I wanted to give them something different, something extraordinary something you know turning can't do's into can do's and so um i i talked with my italian three honors students um because i know i'll have them this year and next year and um i just said hey how would you like to do something like this um my friend robert and i told him about his history and i said you know how would you like to do um something like this and um so we engaged in the conversation together, and we decided as a class that this is something we wanted to move forward with. And um, it's pretty exciting. We're pretty pretty excited. And uh, within a week or so, they're going to meet their friends from San Marino via Zoom. And um, I think it's just I think it's good for them to learn about making connections, um, understanding the professional world outside of the school. Um, we did have a wonderful um, introduction with Robert and a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Courtney Ruffner, who is a um, a professor of literature at the State College of Florida, and she is a Hemingway scholar. And I want to welcome Antonio Baroni, who's a junior at Resurrection. Antonio, you're there with us? Hi, hello, how are you? Good, good, good. Let's start this way. Antonia, tell us a little bit about how, how you see this program, this relationship of Resurrection with San Marino, and how are you involved? Um, well, I think this, uh, doing this will open up a lot of options for us in the future. I think it's exposing us to a lot of good um, skills that we'll need in the future as well. Um, and I think this will be good for every student involved. Say something in Italian, a little something. You're an Italian student, right? Yeah. Say something. Okay. Okay, go ahead. Um, 
Buongiorno, come stai? That's good. Bene, bene. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, Ernest Hemingway and that connect. Maybe why don't we start with Robert, how how he connects with the history of San Marino, and then Lynn, how you connect with that history. So, Robert? You know, a fascinating story. Uh, so um, San Marino uh, was officially neutral during the First World War, but uh, it um, obviously was um, – pro-Italian in sentiment, uh, being of, of the Italian peninsula. And so uh, San Marino uh, had the idea to support the war effort through the establishment of a, a field hospital oh. on the Italian front during the First World War. And Ernest Hemingway, as, uh, as many of us know from, um, from his history and, and from the semi-autobiographic work, A, a, a Farewell to Arms, was an ambulance driver for the Red Cross in Italy who was gravely wounded when he was uh, passing out some supplies on the Italian front. And he was taken to this field hospital of San Marino. He became the first patient of American descent to be treated at this hospital. And they literally saved his life because he had been the victim of uh, an Austrian shelling uh, and uh, his leg was was full of shrapnel, and uh, and so the doctors from the field hospital of San Marino operated on him and saved his life, and he was forever grateful to San Marino for that, and actually subsequently visited the country to to thank the uh, the doctors and the uh, the people behind the hospital who saved him. Beautiful. Now, Lynn, how do you connect that? Uh, in terms of curriculum and how, how the students are going to learn about this. Is this already a topic that they've studied or they're going to? No, this is something we were just, uh, we're starting all together. We're starting this journey together um, because, um, you know, I, I, again, being an Italian teacher, I mean, I've, I've read many things when I was in college and high school, but um, so this is a great way for me also to to connect with the girls and, and to kind of learn together. So what I did was um, created a scope and sequence for the project of what the resurrection students would do, and then also with the San Marino students and engaging conversations with the, the teachers um, from their school as well. And um, so we're going to break it down into groups, and uh, the students are going to be able to choose whether they want to talk about the biography of Hemingway, his residence in Oak Park, his yes. life, his career, and his desire to serve the community, uh, the, the country. And then I'm um, also taking um, the um, Farewell to Arms, uh, the movie In Love and War with Sandra Bullock, and then a, a short story that, again, a friend of mine who is the uh, professor of literature in Florida um, brought to our attention, to me and the girls, um, the Cat in the Rain uh, short story. And so they're going to research these and kind of talk about him and um, how it all relates to to his love for Italy and his time in Italy. The San Marino students are basically doing sort of the same thing, but on their side. So we've got a group of students who are going to talk about the sites and the monuments, and in particular Hemingway's um, San Marino and his love affair for them, um, their, their position in Italy during the war, um, and the relationship between San Marino and Italy based on its position in the middle of the country. Along with uh, San Marino um, and his journey in Italy, we found out, uh, obviously, he was with the Red Cross, and so was in, and San Marino saving his life. But um, we also found out that there is a doctor who is very, very familiar with the story in San Marino, 
And um, the, the students are actually, the, the teachers and, and students are actually beginning a relationship with him um, that uh, somebody, you know, holds um, Hemingway's baptismal certificate. And um, so it's, it's, it's really kind of great to see how we're kind of taking the same topics and some of the students are going to work together, do some research, and then they'll do a final project. And um, it should be pretty cool. Pretty and, excited. And Lynn, your teaching career is just beginning again with this project. Yes. That's wonderful. We'll go with that. <laughs> yes, what, it what is. Great energy. Our thanks to Robert, Lynn, and Antonia for that great conversation. Next up is a highlight from the Voice of Charity. This week, co-hosts Marie Jokum and Bridget Murphy explored how volunteer programs provide service and leadership opportunities. Let's take a listen. So today, we're going to shine a spotlight on two dynamic young people who are currently volunteering full-time at Catholic Charities as part of their service in two different two very valuable programs, one Amate House Fellow Program and the other, the Jesuit Volunteer Corps Magis Graduate Program from Loyola University. Um, their enthusiasm of these women, their their commitment to social justice are, is really incredible. And we think that our listeners are going to be inspired to hear about the work that they are currently doing here in Chicago. So Lauren Jin is 23 and almost halfway through the one-year fellow program at Amati House, which we'll hear more about shortly. While becoming a fellow, young adults live in a faith-based community and grow in their leadership and service experience at various locations in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Lauren has been working at Catholic Charities Southwest Regional Office at St. Gall's Parish, serving clients in a wide variety of ways. Katie Athis is 27, and this May she will receive her master's degree in social work after three years in Loyola University's Jesuit Volunteer Corps Magis program. Katie has been volunteering full-time at Catholic Charities for three years, and she is currently working on the Catholic Charities Heals program, which offers counseling to anyone 25 years or younger who has either been a victim or a witness to a crime. So welcome, Lauren and Katie. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. Lauren, we're going to start with you. Um, what is Amati House? Yeah, so Amati House is a year-long fellowship program rooted in social justice and simplicity and faith. And there are 16 young adults in the program right now, and we're split into two homes. And we live with each other as we work at different nonprofit partners in Chicago during the day. And some of us work as um, things like domestic violence hotline advocates, another person's helping with prison reentry, um, and I'm helping at Catholic Charities as the hospitality coordinator. And Lauren, we know you as someone incredible in that space, but what led you to the fellow program? I know there's lots of opportunities to serve, but what led you to this one? In terms of the work, I've always wanted to learn about social justice up close from a more on-the-ground perspective and also hope to become fluent in Spanish as I thought um, I might want to work with immigrant families in the future. Um, and then in terms of living in the community, I had experienced a similar intentional community before for just a week, and I was amazed by how thoughtful their actions were with even like washing out bread bags to reuse them. So 
I feel really lucky that a mate is very similar in that kind of cohesive sharing environment. I think that washing out, I just saw Bridget have a reaction. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, but it's so washing vivid. out of bread bags, that's, that is one thing that I, I remember I mean, many years ago from my year of service that has stuck with me. Totally. I'm always yes. washing out those bags. Um, I mean, other things have stuck as well, too, but that was such a perfect example of something that you learn when you're living in, in a thoughtful, intentional community. Yes. Now, it seems crazy at first. Yes, right. Right. Then you become a believer. There was, exactly. a the there was often time. a hand reaching over and also shutting off the water that yeah. I was running, yeah. which is also an important lesson. Absolutely. Um, in your service to the community, you mentioned a, a handful of things. What have you been doing at Catholic Charities specifically? And tell us a little bit about what you've learned. Yes, I've been working with Marilu Gonzalez on a number of projects, including helping with the drive-up food pantry and responding to requests that come to the call center. And these have included helping find temporary rental assistance for clients, helping clients fill out the correct forms to receive government benefits, uh, establishing link card accounts for food stamps, and making referrals to legal assistance, domestic violence, and counseling within Catholic Charities. And I also helped coordinate an eight-week mental health webinar in Spanish in conjunction with the School of Social Work at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And, you, you know, Lauren, your your title sort of like as, as Catholic Charities is, is hospitality coordinator. And I think mm-hmm. that's an important thing to highlight because that is what you do. And pre-pandemic, that would have meant a ton of answering the door and being the face um, of Catholic Charities in the city southwest, but you've really continued to do that um, even through some really, really difficult times. Lauren, I, I read a letter um, that you shared with your, we read a letter, I should say, that you shared with your family and friends about your experience in the Amate program. It is beautiful, and there's so many gems in it. I, I underlined a bunch of parts of this. Um, yeah, the, it's just beautiful. I wish we had a whole show to talk about it. But one of the things you raised in that letter is you said, I cling to my discomfort with injustice and hope it sets root within me, driving me to work towards tackling systemic barriers surrounding poverty. There are so many things to unpack here, but can you share with us what you meant by that and kind of how that has informed what you've been doing this last half of year? So... Uh, I speak to a lot of people on the phone and hear their stories. And the more I hear, the more I see up close how systemic issues keep people in poverty. Um, And so I'll give an example of a client, and I'll call her Maria. Um, And so she's 47 years old, washes dishes at a restaurant, um, and she has carpal tunnel. And yet she washes anyway because she's glad just to have a job and come back after COVID. And, um, but the problem is if she can't pay her rent, she'll have to go back to a husband who's physically abusive and she has a child. And I think just the culmination of all these things of um, uh, struggling with citizenship, with health care, with um, getting legal advocacy, Um, are all systemic um, things that we could be more supportive of. um, And um, and, and I think they're causing um, this this cycle back into poverty um, and make it hard to break out of. 
So I just uh, feel a lot when I mm-hmm. speak on the phone with people, and I want to remember that feeling so that it can can drive me in the future to keep thinking about how we can make changes. Thank you for that, Lauren. I think it is really, mm-hmm. you know, part of what we do at Catholic Charities. In some ways, we become part. We are part of the human services and social services safety net, which is in and of itself a system. And I think some of what you're describing affects a lot of our folks where you want to help, you're there to help, but, you know, maybe there are funding rules or there are state, federal regulations, and there are all these um, rules and sometimes barriers that get in the way of giving people the help they need. And we could make it, we we can and must make it easier. Um, But I think uh, you're you're not alone. I'm sure we have people who've worked for Catholic Charities for years, and that's that's probably the hardest part of the job. Um, Mm -hmm. Katie Athas, we have not forgotten about you. (laughs) Tell us about the Magis Graduate Program at Loyola. Yes. Um, So the Magis Program is uh, a program open to those who have completed a year of um, JVC, Jesuit Volunteer Corps. Um, and so it's kind of like, I think, you know, the director Lee Hubble of the Magis program, um, in describing how this program came to be was like, oh, uh, people who have done a year of service were kind of wondering what's next and, um, how they could continue being involved and, and get, you know, more education on either, in either the fields of social work, divinity, um, or social justice. So, the Magis program is, you know, a part of the Loyola um, University of Chicago system, and and so those who are involved in it are, you know, working at a Catholic agency and also at the same time getting a graduate degree in like two or three years. Um, we love the Magis program. We love the Amatis <laughs> program. We love the Magis program. I. Um, for many years, you've been a partner of Catholic Charities, and the work you do is incredible because you spend such a long time with us. Um, and I think that that is a unique piece of this. And I, I know you've done a bunch of things in your time with us, but currently you're working in the Catholic Charities Heals program. Can you share with our listeners what that is? Yeah, so it's a case management and counseling program through the Youth and Family Therapeutic Services, um, you know, division of of Catholic Charities. Um, And we work with, um, you know, uh, kids, teens, adolescents, families in the back of the yards, little village communities, and kind of just the general surrounding area. Um, And um, it is, CC Heals is, is run through a grant from the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Act. Um, and so we work with people who have, uh, who are identified as either being, you know, victims of a crime or have witnessed a crime. So a lot of the, a lot of um, the people we see have either, you know, witnessed community violence or have been a victim of abuse or, you know, it kind of, it kind of experienced trauma in some way and are looking for like case management therapeutic support, um, and we're here for that. (laughs) I mean, it's an incredible program when you think about stepping into people's lives um, in a a traumatic moment, in 
remembering some trauma and dealing with sort of the systemic effects of that trauma on a community. Um, so we are really grateful for that program and for um, people like you, Katie, who are willing to, to go into those really hard conversations and hard spaces with individuals. We're going to go real deep now, mm -hmm. and we're going to ask each of you, Katie, we'll start with you. What have you learned about yourself during your time in the Amate and Majas volunteer programs? It's a great question. Um, I, I think, um, you know, I've, I, I graduate in May, so I'm almost like it's been a full three years since I've been in, both been in Chicago, been at Catholic Charities, and also been in school. Just a few things um, going on. <laughs> um, so I think that's a, I think for, for a lot of people who do this all the time, and I'm definitely not a unique person in this, I think I've looked, that's a lot to juggle. So it's, it's school, it's work, it's living in community, it's, you know, trying to have a personal life. And I think, you know, me and along with a lot of other people who do this all the time, all the people who work, you know, for jobs, um, to feed their families. I I just kind of realized how capable I am of doing it. I think I came in being very nervous that I wouldn't be able to do it. And, you know, three years later, I'm, you know, very confident that I am capable of, of handling whatever is thrown at me. Um, and I like to, I like to encourage the people I work with and my housemates and you know, friends and family that they're also capable of, of handling things, especially in in these really difficult times. I think we've all been really put to a test and and um, many people have been struggling a lot. So um, I don't know. I like to just communicate that, you know, I am, I believe in people and I think that they're capable of maybe a lot more than they think they are um, because I've, I've seen it so much. Yeah. Thank you for, I mean, that's a, that's a big deal. And mm -hmm. I think we gain confidence from each other, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think you've grown in that way. And I think other people seeing you handle that, um, you know, helps us, helps everyone know that they can do exactly what you're saying. Yeah. How about you, Lauren? Well, I live um, in, in Little Village. And I think I learned that I love to be right there with the people that I'm serving um, and just be friends with them. And even through the pandemic, although we couldn't go over for dinner, we do build snowmen with our neighbors and things like that. And um, I think I like that connection to community and hope I can continue to have that in my life. For more information about Catholic Charities, how they assist people in need, and how you can help, visit catholiccharities.net. That's catholiccharities.net. You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio, 950 a.m. and 930 a.m. Every Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m., the Archdiocese of Chicago presents programming about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Thanks for letting us be part of your morning. Now again, Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Up next, we hear from the folks from the Office for Human Dignity and Solidarity on their program called Fully Alive. 
This month, co-hosts Dawn Fitzpatrick and Ray Pingoy spent time talking with Bob Gilligan from the Catholic Conference of Illinois about a proposed repeal of the parental notification of abortion for minors law in Illinois. Let's listen in. There's, there's some scary stuff that was introduced recently, both in the House and the Senate, um, and we've even put together a coalition to fight it. So why don't, we, why don't you just t- talk a little bit about what's going on? Yeah, uh, we have a big challenge in front of us, and mm-hmm. we are going to put together a group of people to help meet that challenge. And mm-hmm. what has happened is that legislation has been introduced, uh, House Bill 1797, I think the number is right, yep. and there's a Senate yep. bill as well. 2190. And, Yep. And and what those two bills do is they essentially, they essentially repeal the parental notification for abortion law in Illinois. And I think most listeners know that right now the law in Illinois requires uh, a parent to be notified if uh, – a parent or guardian to be notified mm-hmm. if their teen daughter goes in for an abortion. So the Illinois law is – only notification. Right. Uh, there's not consent. Um, many states surrounding us have consent laws. The parent has to actually prove it. We don't even go that far. But uh, so that law is on the books. It's been on the books um, in effect since like uh, 2003, I think it was. And, you know, we've seen the number of abortions of teens decrease for the most part through that time period. But the uh, pro-abortion lobby doesn't like that. And so they want to repeal that bill. Uh, that law. And so uh, what, Don, uh, what you're alluding to is that um, we are assembling a group of parents and activists who are going to make their voice heard um, with basically kind of three or four messages. The first message is that, hey, uh, parents have to give consent for just about everything in their child's life. And any parent out there who can relate to having a child in school or not even in school, um, our laws require parents' involvement in their children's lives in a number of different ways, sure. um, medicine, field trips, they go, it goes on and on, and everybody knows what they are. And we think that the law should also require a parent to be notified if their underage child is seeking an abortion. So parents' rights are going to be a big, big theme of what we're talking about. But also in conversations with the larger groups, we've discovered that um, there is a very valid concern out there for anybody who's concerned about human trafficking. Sure. And that laws like parental notification and parental consent, because of their very nature, provide at least some check that um, a parent may find out that their underage daughter is being trafficked. Um, mm. The statistics on the number of individuals being trafficked and parents don't even know about it is, is alarming. Yeah. And so we have been talking to some individuals who have founded not-for-profits and have done research in this area. We're going to lend their voice to make lawmakers aware that repeal of parental notification laws will increase the number of individuals being trafficked um, in this state. And then another um, platform that we will have, another message we will be sending is that I think most parents can relate to this one, is that children and, and, and individuals' brains are not fully formed until the mm-hmm. age of 25. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Teens engage in risky behavior, and I think all of us over the age of maybe, well, 25 can relate to when we were kids and did things that were, well, you know, uh, we probably wouldn't do them today. And part of the reason is because kids being kids and who they are is their brains are, are not necessarily providing those warning signals when risky behavior is in, in front of them not to do something. So that's the other theme of what we're going to be talking about. And, and those three messages we hope to get out there far and wide 
And we hope that uh, enough attention on those issues will persuade enough lawmakers not to uh, support those bills I mentioned. That's sure, what we're working on. Sure. Yeah. So let's so let's just talk for just a minute on the the trafficking end. So we happen to be in a state here in the Midwest that is more permissive, we can say, in on, in abortion than than the states surrounding us. Is that true? Yes. I think our laws are weaker. I think most people would agree with that. Yeah. So therefore, and actually in the last couple of years, they, the um, the lawmakers in Illinois have actually kind of opened the floodgates for abortion here in Illinois, um, so to speak. And states surrounding yeah. like, um, you know, like Missouri and Indiana and Wisconsin and Iowa all have stricter laws. And so would, would it be that some people from those states would bring girls here to have an abortion? Flying over here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, absolutely. And I, mm-hmm. and unfortunately, I think we see that happening today. And I think if we repeal plural modification, we will even see more of that. Um, yeah. You're absolutely right. And, you know, what you had mentioned is that it's no secret that uh, public money now goes to pay for abortions in Illinois. So, you know, you can be, it is possible to be from another state, come here, procure an abortion, go back, and we pay for it. That, uh, that, is, that is possible. What I just described is not illegal. It can happen. Um, It's very difficult to prove to what extent it's happening because, (laughs) you know, unfortunately, I don't think uh, the authorities really want to know the answer to that question, but it is attainable if they wanted to know. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's uh, it's very frustrating that um, our lax laws are leading to, you know, numbers of deaths. and, And that's a sad state of affairs. So, um, that's one another reason why we really want to be um, very vocal about repeal and making sure that this parental notification law is not repealed. Sure, because of course, if if those parents were notified that their daughter was brought to Illinois for this purpose, um, they might be able to do something about it. But otherwise, this could happen, and they would be none the wiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, right. and heaven forbid that child has a complication in her abortion, and the parents right. don't know about it. And that's an excellent point. Um, think about that. I mean, every parent knows, I mean, if your child is sick or acting maybe a little differently, mm-hmm. you, don't you think you'd want to know why? I mean, yeah, it, yeah. you know, we all can, I think, relate, or at least we can relate at some level to um, this is a very uh, invasive uh, procedure, mm-hmm. and it has significant, you know, emotional and mental and physical um, consequences. It can have sufficient con- physical consequences, too. And you know, so a, a child could go and have this procedure, and the parent would never even know. And yeah. then, you know, why is my daughter acting so strangely? And like, what happened? And right. you know, you seem to be fine. And 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 the law does nothing to err on the side of a parent's right to know. That right. just that I think any reasonable person looks at this and, and just shakes their head. At least most people I know right. have that reaction, yeah. but. Yeah. Somehow or another, when you get into the building in Springfield, that thing seems like everything's upside down sometimes. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, I think part of the problem is there is a rhetoric out there that says this is a very simple procedure. It's not It's yeah. not major surgery, which is wrong. I mean, you think about what's happening. Sure, they, they only keep them for a few hours and then they send them home. But um, but that doesn't mean that, that major things aren't happening for that during that procedure. So, you well, know. Absolutely. I mean, you know, how many um, dioceses out out there have programs to deal with women who yes. who now later regret their abortion? They wish they hadn't done it, and mm-hmm. you know, they they wonder why they've had certain problems in their life, and they never could quite. Yes. So I was just talking to somebody the other day that that was exactly her story. She had an abortion at sixteen. 
and she kind of just ignored it and and she's had significant um problems in her life dealing with 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 things most of us can deal with she had some substance abuse issues and and this person was telling me it wasn't until just very recently she thinks now that a lot of this can stem from that abortion she sure. had when she was a child and she never even realized it yeah. and, and it's very sad and 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 look we know these things happen and and as catholics and as christians we know what our obligation is, is to reach out to people who have been hurt and, and try to uh, repair that damage. And that's what a lot of, you know, what, a lot of what you do and a mm-hmm. lot of what uh, other, other faith communities do. And so why would we want to perpetuate more of that? Exactly. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. Well, and, and I can tell you that is one of the ministries of our, of our office mm-hmm. is Project Rachel. Yeah. And, um, and we do take calls from women who sometimes didn't realize why their life took the spiral downward and then they finally realized it all went back to that abortion they had. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. we're, you know, and, and when you're thinking of talking about a young girl whose brain isn't even formed yet and are completely formed and she makes a decision like this without her parents even knowing, and then there's nobody there to help her through this and the emotional, you know, just damage that could occur. Um, it's, 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 it's very frightening to say yes. the least. Um, yes. And then hopefully that that young girl at some point can pick up the pieces of her life that her parents didn't even know she has, was going through. I mean, just unbelievable that we would want to perpetuate such a thing. Um, I, and, I, and I agree, you know, and, and, and like as adults, shouldn't we act as responsible individuals? You know, what you're going to see, the dynamics of this issue that are going to play out is that the people that are are proposing this law, they were going to be putting young people, young women, young girls out there, and they will say all these horror stories they had in trying to procure their abortion. And in essence, it boils down to many times that they didn't want to wait um, to uh, go before uh, a judge and use this what they call judicial bypass. Mm-hmm. And or they felt inconvenience. They had to travel great distances for their abortion. And so the dynamics of this that are going to play out is you're going to have very young people um, on one side espousing that there should be no parental notification law and that what you and I, Don, have been working on is on the other side. We'll have hopefully a significant number of adults and parents saying, well, that's <laughs> because parents need to know about things and are responsible for their children's actions. Well, and and we, we have to reinforce yes. that message. I know, you know, Ray and I do a lot of talk, talks and theology of the body discussions. And, and, and one of the things about our vocation as parents is that we are the educators of our children, right? We're the primary educators of our children. Right. Um, that's what our church teaches. So therefore, it, it's up to us to teach our children right from wrong and to guide them in the right direction. And it's and the church would stand behind us and say, you know, we can't take away a parent's rights or or a parent's um, obligation to raise their children. Um, and if so, what this does is in effect say, parents, you you don't matter. Um, the the child can do whatever they want, and you don't have to know about it, and uh, and you don't get a say. So that's right. kind of frustrating. Um, I mean, you know, I was just. We've been talking, Bob, about recently there was a, a law enacted about tobacco, right, in this state? And, That's right. And what did what did what went on with that with parents and understanding they, about children? <laughs> they raised the age right from mm-hmm. eighteen to twenty one in order to purchase cigarettes, tobacco mm-hmm. products, and and e-cigarettes. You mm-hmm. had to twenty one to purchase uh, um, a cigarette. 
Which is, we know that cigarettes and e-cigarettes can be harmful to a, a person's health, certainly. Right. Um, and that parents sh- should be able to say, I don't, I don't want you to buy that. I don't want you to use that. Um, how, you know, how wor- much worse is it that we're actually um, allowing a child or, or that the suggestion is we should allow a child to make a, tr- a life or death choice like abortion without any parental guidance? See, that just doesn't seem like yeah. we're thinking it, the same way here. <laughs> it makes no sense, though. Any rational person, but right. I, I don't know. That's what they're trying to do. You're, you you mentioned this, Bob, about I mean this this isn't necessarily a notification or uh, a, a consent. consent. It's just a notification, right? The, right. the existing law, and right. even if you know, it's, it's really a common sense thing where if if there is some sort of a physical abuse happening in the, in the family or, or something, there, there's the current law allows this minor girl. To seek a judicial waiver of a notification, right? It's right, right. but yet they want to a- appeal that. It's right. They don't like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It's an inconvenience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't so, like that. So, how many times is is a a fifteen year old girl dating a, a man who's in his twenties, and maybe the parents don't know about it? Mm-hmm. And exactly. and that man then can say, "Oh, you're pregnant. Well, we're just going to take care of that. Your parents don't even have to know." Right. Um, I mean, that's one thing that could happen. It could also be that there's a. a an older man who is um, using that girl to um, for happening. other things, and the parents often. don't know, and now he's able to hide that evidence. That's right. Yeah, that's the tragic, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. that's exactly where they're going. Right. Yep. Well, and and how many times does it happen that um, that a girl? Yeah, I mean, has have, has there been some statistics that a girl was abused and that and that she suffered poor consequences because her parents were notified? Is there any statistics on that? No, um, and that's actually a very good question. I thought, I'm glad you brought this subject up. Mm-hmm. Um, I would ask that if anybody listening to this um, has an experience with this law, if there's a parent or grandparent um, who had a daughter and was notified, and as a result of the notification, your daughter has now uh, had a grandson or granddaughter, mm-hmm. and it's worked out well to please please call uh, Don's office, uh, my office, because we would really like to be able to um, say to people, well, here's an example of where the law worked. My daughter went in Mm -hmm. for an abortion. I was notified. We talked about it. We decided to have the child, and here's the child. So if anybody out there has that personal experience, we would really like to talk to you if you were willing to come forth and share your story. Um, Obviously, we understand this is a very sensitive subject, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's not something that people want to necessarily talk about. But if you're willing, I would please uh, urge you to call uh, Don's office or my office, and uh, sure. we could uh, talk about that further. Well, you can reach my office at 312-534-5355, um, and you can certainly find information at, about us at respectlifechicago.org. Yeah, and I'll just add our I mean, for the for the time being is the best way to get a hold of me is uh, the number is three one two three one five four six two one. Our thanks to Dawn, Ray, and Bob for that timely information. Here's a reminder that you can listen to all the programs live or at your convenience by going to radiotv.artchicago.org. That's radiotv.artchicago.org. And our programs are available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. Please subscribe today. 
For our final segment, we turn to the program called Dare to Love, a program that promotes vocational awareness. This month, host Sister Lovina Pamet continued her discussion with Sister Anita Baird and Sister Maria Simperman about a call to transformative love in a religious life. Here is a highlight. My guests today, first, we'll, we're going to talk to Sister Maria Simperman and Sister Maria you, I think this is the third time you've come back. Thank you so much, because there's so many things that's going on in, in your ministry, including uh, being at the Catholic Theological Union uh, for the Center of Study for Consecrated Life. Also, uh, very recently, you had an event with the International Union Superiors General, otherwise known as UISG, because of your book, Religious Life for Our World, Creating Communities of Hope. So uh, first of all, if you could reintroduce yourself and uh, what you do, Sister Maria, and then we'll talk about your book. Ah, well, thank you, Sister Lavina. I, I just think I'm a, a part of your fan club, and so I get to be on this gathering with you, which is great fun as well. And to be able to be with Sister Anita, it's just a, a wonderful little community that gets created uh, about just what's really important to us. And thank you. Yes, I am at Catholic Theological Union, and I teach courses in social ethics, Catholic social thought, moral theology, and also the vowed life. And uh, to that point, uh, a recent uh, book uh, that came was uh, just was published in September was uh, Religious Life for Our World, Creating Communities of Hope. And it was a just a real honor and a privilege to be invited by Sister Pat Murray, an IBVM sister, uh, to share about the book and um, also to invite two people who were in the course this fall but who also read the book and were using it with people who work with those who are in formation ministry, walking with newer members, and then um, that work with folks around the world. So it was it was a real gift because what you always desire is, for me, it's not just about writing a book. It's that it would be of some use. It could serve God's reign, God's vision, and that it could assist religious life right now in the moment in which we are, which is a moment of much shifting and change and also great possibility. Um, but it requires us to pause and to see and to uh, do some realigning as well. That's right. So this this book, uh, Creating Communities of Hope. So first of all, the word community and then hope. So in terms of religious life, consecrated life, including um, the lay ecclesial um, uh, or, or actually like consecrated virgin um, and also the societies of faith and uh, all the other communities that may not, you know, we you would normally call um, brothers and sisters, but still part of that uh, consecrated vowed life. Um, what is the mm-hmm. challenge um, of today in the world, especially during COVID? Well, you were using just those words, community and hope, and, um, you know, community and hope are for all of us, all people of God. And then when we look at consecrated life, you're right. Um, there's so many different forms of consecrated life. And how do we build community today? One of the things I write about in the book is uh, community is both a door and a destination. 
And I think in light of COVID, it's the same point. Uh, community is the doorway we go into where we can be ourselves, where we can be vulnerable and say, this has been such a hard time, or I, I've lost people dear to me, or I've not been able to see people. Um, it's the space where we can together pray and hear what God's inviting and God's own consolation. And it's also the place where we learn to be with one another and have our growing edges. But it's also where we together look at the world around us, look at the church. And then it's a destination. So here it fits you know, the work you're doing, it's a destination. It's to build community everywhere to everyone that's listening in uh, on this gathering. And it's to then build that reign of God uh, outward and to say, I'm going to learn as much out from people like my married brothers and sisters from the wider community, but I can bring our way of loving um, forth, because uh, anything you gain in religious life gets used outward. And then hope, you know, that's the gift right now um, that we can hold on to, is hope is, is also a distinctively Christian virtue, though others can have hope, but our hope is in God. Um, as much as I'm eager to get the vaccine, uh, my hope is can't ultimately be more in the vaccine than it is in God. Um, so, but to see like God's hope manifested in humans doing good, science saying, here, we can help with this. But, but that deep sense that right now um, I give my hopes to God and ask for God's hope, um, because that's so much deeper than optimism, uh, than a sense of, well, there's a 50-50 chance this will happen or it won't snow or, you know, the Cubs or the White Sox or something. But that, that's the gift is that um, hope is communal. Hope comes from God. Uh, hope's, hope allows us to be our fullest human self in there. And, and that's the call of religious life. It's, you know, in my book I say I, the religious life is supposed to be good news. Good news for me in religious life and consecrated life. Good news for my community. Good news for my congregation. It's supposed to be good news for the church, and it's supposed to be good news for the world. And every one of the vows are called to be good news for all of these groups in there. And, and that's part of the Spirit's creativity and work in religious life today and beyond. That is so beautiful and really, uh, especially around this time of pandemic, building that uh, community and hope um, is really something to look forward to and to live now. Uh, now, this month, there will be a, an event that is the uh, second series about a call to transformative love in religious life, stories of race, place, and grace. This is the second three-part series jointly sponsored by the Center for the Study of Consecrated Life and the National Black Sisters Conference. So which one of you would like to um, uh, talk about this first? Well, I'll go first. Um, this is Sister Anita. Yes, um, I am very excited about this. We began this project um, last year, and we were hoping that it would be received well. But it, uh, it was beyond our, our wildest dreams. Um, I think Sister Maria would agree with me. The response mm -hmm. that we did get from it, um, which really 
showed um, the depth of, of interest and commitment on the part of so many in religious life to work for racial justice and equity in our communities and to face the not-so-pleasant uh, histories of our congregations, but to do it in the light of moving forward and living that example. Maria was talking about community, and it really means to commune, and to commune is to be one. And so that's what we are hoping that this will bring about, a beginning of, um, of learning, of acknowledging, of healing, and moving forward. So we're going to be doing the second um, series beginning next week, and it will be for three Mondays, March 8th, 15th, and 22nd. Um, and we have um, two very dynamic uh, presenters, uh, Father Joseph Brown, who is a Jesuit on the uh, faculty of the University of Illinois in uh, Carbondale, and a theologian, uh, very um, well-known um, throughout theological uh, uh, groups. And Father uh, Brown will be looking at the uh, context of the historical nature of racism within the church and the impact that that has had, uh, not only on uh, people of color, but on our institutions and how it has impacted the lives of people of color. Um, and then on the 15th, we will have uh, Sister Addie Lorraine Walker, who is a school sister of Notre Dame and a professor of theology at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. And uh, Sister Addie is going to help us um, look at what we call microaggressions, you know, how, um, how we relate to people of color, the ways that we can be offensive without even knowing it or marginalizing people by our language, the words we use, the questions we ask. Um, and so that we have a better awareness and sensitivity uh, to build respect and to be able to identify what may be um, uh, racist in, in us that we're not even aware of, mm -hmm. and we certainly would not want it to be there. So that will be her contribution on the 15th, and I'll let Sister Maria maybe talk about the 22nd. Mm. Thank you, and uh, it's just a joy to be working with the National Black Sisters Conference and Sister Anita in it. Um, I just feel very honored that we can collaborate on this and together be church and religious life saying, how do we, you know, in a nation that's struggling with this, how might religious life offer something in the midst and do our own work uh, is Sister Anita mentioned. Uh, in the third session, it's going to be a conversation with Sister Anita, Sister Gail Awanga, Good Shepherd Sister, uh, Sister Josita Cobert, uh, who's a sister of Notre Dame, Dana Moore, and myself. And the questions, you know, get us at again, where do we go from here? We close today's program with an important reminder that you can attend Mass Online by visiting our website, artschicago.org. That's artschicago.org. The Masses are also available on Facebook and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash catholicchicago. Our thanks to ABC7 for televising our English Sunday Mass at 9.30 in the morning, to Univision for televising our Spanish language Mass at 10 a.m., 
and Polevision for televising our Polish language mass, Sunday at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Thank you for listening to us every Saturday morning here on Relevant Radio 950 and 930 a.m. I'm Michael May for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.